0: All right, I uh, want to ask you guys a, a question to begin. question is this, what does greatness look like? What is it to be great? Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about myself. So I grew up a pretty big basketball fan. Uh, one of my fonder memories as a, a child was getting to watch sports with my dad. So we actually we usually watched hockey, but uh, I vaguely remember that when it was the NBA finals, we would watch a little bit of basketball. Um, Ray Ray's probably going nuts. He's, oh yeah, he's, yeah, big basketball fan. He's gonna enjoy this. Um, some of you are, 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 are probably a, a little bit too young for this, which is actually really crazy for me to think, but there was a player named Michael Jordan who revolutionized the game of basketball. And I realize that you probably know the name, but, I suspect, actually, most people here probably never actually saw him play, and that's kind of crazy to me. He played in the '90s, and some of you guys were born in the '90s, um, and so you probably don't even remember him at all. But um, all that aside, um, I remember I was pretty young, but I, I, we, my dad and I, we watched the the finals in 1998. Uh, his he played for the, the the Chicago Bulls, and they beat the Utah Jazz, and. Uh, Michael Jordan hit like this insane shot to win the game. It was like a super iconic moment in his career. And it cemented his legacy as the greatest basketball player of his day. All right. So fast forward a, a little bit. When I was in high school, there was another player that came into the league. And he had a similar form of dominance. He still plays in the league today. You may be more familiar with him. His name's LeBron James and like Michael Jordan, LeBron has had a lot of success in the NBA. He, he dominated the league while, he, while, he's, while playing in it and, and so naturally, people start making comparisons between him and Michael Jordan. And so whenever you kind of bring these two names into the conversation, the, the, the conversation it quickly turns to this question, Well, which one is the greatest, right? Who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time? And and so what people do is is they turn to the numbers, right? Who's won more championships? Who's scored more points? Who's played better defense? Who won more MVPs, right? Who who has more Olympic medals, right? All of these statistics. And, And so people analyze all of this just to figure out who is the greatest of all time. And whether that's basketball or anything else, we have this tendency to want to wanna know what makes someone great right? How, what, what is it that makes someone great? Is it how much money they've made? Is it how much money they've given away? Is it how long they've been in power, maybe as a politician or something like that? Is it how much good that they've done for society? Is it how good of a person they are personally? What, are, they, are they so kind, right? What defines greatness? And, and that's a little bit about what we're talking about today, right? What does greatness look like? And a little bit more specifically, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? And as we go through our text for today, um, what we're going to see is that what defines greatness is rather counterintuitive to what we might think. And so we're going to explore that a little bit more today as we go through our text. Today we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, If you're new here, over the past few months we've been going through this book is written by a man named Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector, and he was also a disciple of Jesus. And so Matthew witnessed the life of Jesus firsthand. And the book that he writes tells about the life of Jesus and all that he did, including his teachings and his miracles. And one of the main things that Jesus proclaimed while he was here on earth is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The kingdom of God is at hand. And what that means is that Jesus came to bring about the reign of God in the lives of those who would follow him. And so a lot of what we've been exploring in this series is what does it look like to follow Jesus? What, is it, what does it mean to, for him to reign in our lives? And what does it look like to belong to his kingdom? So again, as we get into our text, we're going to explore that a little bit more. Let's uh, begin by reading our text for today. Um, If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible at the welcome table uh, where you came in, there are going to be a few uh, copies of the the Bible there. I'd invite you to take one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to, to just keep that. That is our gift to you. So, Um, Again, we're going to read our text for today. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be. And we'll begin in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. "'Tear it out and throw it away. "'It is better for you to enter life with one eye "'than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. "'See that you do not despise one of these little ones, "'for I tell you that in heaven "'their angels always see the face of my Father "'who is in heaven. "'What do you think? "'If a man has a hundred sheep "'and one of them has gone astray,' Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them... Uh, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. We come to another story here. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, there's a lot there, so let's get right into it. Um, As we we just read, uh, our passage today begins with this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. So we're told that the, the disciples approach Jesus and they ask him this question, right? They say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I want to pause there just for a minute to make a simple observation. Okay? One observation that, that is going to help us understand the rest of this passage. What does this question concern? Right? What, is it, what is this question about? It's not a trick question. right? It has to do with being. I can't hear you great, right? It has to do with being great, right? And and the reason I point that out is because the rest of this passage has to do with greatness. This whole chapter has to do with things that are great. And, and I'll say this too. The, the word great uh, is one of those words that is pretty overused in our culture. And because of it, I think it's lost a lot of its meaning. So I'll give you an example. Today, when we say great, it basically means like a little bit better than good, right? If you, let's say you make plans to meet someone, right? So you, you say, hey, let's meet at this place. Uh, you set a time and, and you say, what do you say? You say, great, I'll see you then, right? That's fine, right? That's just how we use the, the word today. But really how I want us to see it today is in terms of its magnitude. Something that is great is larger than life. It is grand. It is monumental. And so that's how we're going to see that word used as we go through our text today. So to return to this question, the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What they want to know is who's going to be up there, right? Who's the MJ? Who's the LeBron? Who gets to rule with God in his kingdom? Who has the positions of privilege in God's kingdom? And we read that and you might think, you know, this is just something that friends do, right? This is a lighthearted joking with one another, kind of just ribbing each other. Oh, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest, right? Except what we see from the other gospels is that this was a real debate for the disciples. So in the books of of Mark and Luke, other gospels, it it says that the disciples were actually arguing over this. In fact, in, in Mark's account, it says that as Jesus hears them talking about it, they get quiet, it's almost as if they were ashamed that they were arguing about it. And so this seems to be a legitimate question that they have, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe we can we can speculate for a little bit of how they would justify themselves being great, right? Maybe one of them comes from parents who are both Jewish, so they would claim I've got more of an ethnic claim to the kingdom of God. Maybe one is better at keeping the law than the others. Maybe one gives more money than the rest. Maybe one comes from a more of a privileged background, right? They come from they come from wealth, or they come from a position of authority. And, right, and so they're, they're debating with one, each other, with one another here, what makes someone great? But this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, none of this is what makes you great. And rather than telling them who is great, Jesus answers by telling them what greatness looks like. What does he say? He says, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, greatness comes through humility. It is by humbling yourself that you become great. And what we see is how counterintuitive the kingdom of God is, how against the norm God's kingdom is. We would not expect a child to be great, right? They have not accomplished anything yet. They are not strong. They're not educated. They have not made anything of themselves. But what is a child? A child is humble, gentle, and lowly. And so how do you become great in the kingdom of God? You become great by becoming small. John the Baptist says this of Jesus. He says, He must increase and I must decrease. And I'll say this as well. This goes against every fiber of our being. This makes no sense to us. Why? Because what do we want to do? We want to show off our greatness. Our natural propensity is to say, Let's compare stats. Right? Look at all the good things that I did. Let me show you how great that I am. But in God's kingdom, things are flipped upside down. The, the proud who lift themselves up will be humbled, and those who are humble will be called great. And Jesus, is clear that our entrance into the kingdom of God is not what we have done, it is what has been done for us by Jesus on the cross. And so those who are lowly will be lifted up, and the proud will be brought low. And we should recall this from Jesus' words on uh, in the Sermon of the, on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on. We see this in the, New Test- uh, in the Old Testament as well, in, in the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet confronts God's people from, for for turning their back on God and boasting in themselves. So the Israelites had become proud and they had rejected the God of their ancestors. And so this is what Isaiah says to them. He says in Isaiah 2, he says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. I read this with Skyler the other day and we had like actions that go with it. So if I'm like using my hands a lot, it's because we were doing this together. So (laughs) this is what what we do. Anything that was like something high, we're like high and Being brought low is like this, okay? I might do that, okay? For the Lord of of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, it says, and the hardiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Right? Church, where, where God reigns, those who are proud of their own accomplishments will be brought low, but those who are low for the sake of Christ will be raised up with him. So we see that greatness comes through humility, Next we see great are the consequences of sin. Great are the consequences of sin. Jesus gets into the severity of sin and the dire consequences for those who cause others to sin. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, says it would be, greater, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That picture is, is rather extreme. Uh, I, I remember uh, being in in the villages of Morocco and seeing old millstones that they would use to grind flour. Um, I've actually got a picture for one of uh, for, for us here. Um, if we can put that picture up. Yeah, that's, so that's what a, a millstone looks like. Um, you can see that it, it is basically this massive stone that uh, a donkey would walk around to grind the flour. It's probably about four to five feet across and at least a foot thick, probably even thicker than that. You can't even see like, how deep into the ground it goes. Um, now, you can imagine your chances of survival if you were attached to that in the middle of the ocean, right? That's the picture that we get here. There is no chance of survival. And Jesus says that would be a better fate than if you cause one of these little ones to sin. He later talks about the consequences for those who will not turn from their sin. It says it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire, into hell. Let me just pause and address that for a minute. Because if you're like me, you probably have this question how could a good God send anyone to hell, right? How can God judge people? How is that loving? And if you don't have that question, maybe you should, right? It is a perfectly reasonable question to ask. How could a good God send anyone to hell? And I think that is something to, to wrestle with, right? Let's, let's back up for a minute, though. What are we talking about when, we talk, when we're talking about heaven and hell, right? Remember, uh, Jesus Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of heaven was arriving, meaning God's rule was about to take place in people's lives. That means humbling yourself, turning from your selfish ways, and submitting to God's ways. And that is what heaven is like. It is where we turn from our ways to God's ways. God will completely reign in our lives. Sin will be no more because God's love will reign in our hearts. Heaven is where the love of Christ rules. And so if you do not want that now, why would you want that for eternity? God, God is loving enough not to force you into eternity with him if you do not want to be there with him. Now, if if you don't want to be with Jesus, you choose sides with his enemy. And God is a just God, and he will not let sin go unpunished. It is not loving for him to ignore sin. But a loving God does forgive sin. And it is not by you trying to be better and to earn your way into favor with God. It is by looking at Jesus and saying, that is the love that I want to dwell in me—a self-sacrificial love, one willing to die for the sins of the world. And so, for those who put their faith in Jesus, He gladly welcomes them into the kingdom of heaven where He reigns. But for those who don't, great are the consequences of sin. And so, because of the consequences of sin are so great. Jesus then tells us great measures must be taken to fight sin. Great measures must be taken to fight sin. Uh, Jesus says in in verse 8 and 9, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. On, On some level here, this is hyperbolic, right? Jesus isn't really telling us that we should cut off a limb or gouge out an eye. On the other hand, his point is really clear, right? We ought to take extreme measures to eliminate sin from our lives. We ought to do whatever we can to get rid of sin that we struggle with. Um, I'll say this on Tuesday evenings. There's a a group of men from this church that gather to to help fight against sexual sin and and lust in their lives. And if you're interested, I'd love to, to share more about that with you after service. Uh, but one of the main principles that we try to implement is called maximized recovery. It's called maximized recovery, right? And what, what it is, is this idea that we do everything within our power to eliminate sin from our lives. So that means prayer, that means attending group weekly, that means reading scripture, that means regularly contacting accountability partners, that means cutting, or that, that may mean cutting off electronics, that may mean blocking social media, that means that you make great steps to eliminate sexual sin from your life. And you might be thinking, yikes, that's incredibly extreme. Yeah, it is very extreme, and that is the point. Great measures must be taken to fight sin. Because what we've seen is that every single person that is in this group has, is in a better place now than they were before coming into the group. Every person has seen growth from taking their sin seriously and be, being accountable to the group. Anything so that we are not living in unrepented sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if you can't stop watching porn because there are no restrictions on your devices, you may, may need to cut that off too. And so let me ask you, what measures are you willing to take to cut off sin from your life? And this doesn't have to be with sexual sin. That is just an example. But are you willing to take great measures to fight your sin? Or are you just casually waiting for it to go away? What measures will you go to to ensure you are not in unrepentant sin? When we give our lives to Jesus, we give just that. We give our entire lives. We don't say, yeah, but not just, not this one thing, right? That's too hard to give up. It is is too hard for Jesus to fix that area of my life. I, I like that sin way too much really to fight it. No, we do not say that. Take great measures to remove sin from your life. It is better to enter life without a hand, a foot, an eye, a tongue, or an ear than to be thrown into the eternal fire of hell. So we see the the great consequences of sin and the great measures we ought to take to remove sin from our lives. Next, we see that... The, the great, uh, sorry, next we see that great is the love of God for sinners. Great is the love of God for sinners. And Jesus, he tells this parable of the shepherd that leaves his sheep to find one that's lost. If you've been around church for a while, you might uh, be familiar with this song, Reckless Love. Um, it has sort of popularized this story within the last few years. But The parable is this. It's of, of a shepherd that loses one of his sheep. And he leaves his other 99 just so that he can find the lost one. And what it demonstrates is the lengths that God would go to to bring back a believer in sin. How how much love he has for us that he would pursue just one lost sheep. Jesus says this, he says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so he goes after us. He pursues us even when we don't pursue him. If you are a follower of Christ, know that this is the type of of love that God has for you. Even when you turn to sin, even when you try to hide, no matter how far you've gone from him, God continues to pursue you. It is his will that none of his perish. And he pursues you relentlessly. And he rejoices so much when you are found, when you turn from your sin and return to him. He is so glad. If you feel, if you feel far from him today, know that he is pursuing you. Great is the love that God has for sinners, so much so that he sent his son to die uh, to, to earth to die for them. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the type of love that God has for you. So much that he would lay down his life for you. And though we are prone to leave him over and over again, he always comes after us. And so come and turn to him today. Great is the love that God has for sinners. And Jesus tells us with this same type of love, we ought to pursue those who sin against us. If if we are followers of Christ... We ought to pursue the lost with this same kind of love. Verse 15 to 20 talks about what it looks like to pursue a believer in sin. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The picture that we get here is a relentless pursuit of a believer who's in sin. And so with the same type of love that God pursues sinners, he calls the church to pursue them with as well. If we look... Uh, Take a look here. Jesus gives us kind of four steps of bringing back someone uh, who's in sin. First, Jesus says that when someone sins against us, we should go to them and tell it to them in private. And I promise you, this is never easy, right? I know for me, probably one of my biggest fears is is confrontation. Um, I absolutely hate it. It would be so much easier for me to just try to, like, forget the person's sin or, uh, let the person continue in sin and, like, maybe they sin against someone else and they can confront them or something. That's, I, I despise confrontation with every, every part of me. Um, and yet, that is not what we are called to do. It, it is no coincidence that this parable of the lost sheep is right before this, right? It is with that picture in mind that Jesus wants us to think about this. So what does God do when, when one of his sheep are lost? He leaves the 99 others. There's a sense here that he's going with urgency. There's no time to waste. His love is so great that he goes as soon as he can. And so before we gossip about what the others did to us or we try to ignore their sin, Jesus tells us to go urgently and lovingly confront this person privately. If that doesn't work, um, there's more steps. He, he calls us to bring one or two others. So after you've, you've gone to address them privately, if they still won't turn from their sin, Jesus says, bring a couple of others. Um, I like what David Platt writes. He writes this. He says, in the context of the church, this step of discipline involves one or two others. A circle remains really small here. And, and these should, should be believers who are gentle, humble, loving, and willing to go with you to speak to an unrepentant brother or sister. He says, the point of this step is to broaden the circle slightly so that one or two others get involved in the situation, but not to begin ganging up on that brother or sister with people whom you can build a case with. Instead, these other believers can help you think through the situation better. I think that's a good, a good approach to, to how we would confront someone uh, with, with sin. It's not that we're ganging up on them. It's, it's saying, hey, we're doing this as a small group. This isn't like a large group of people that we're trying to gang up on you here. We're keeping this as small as we can. We're not gossiping about your situation. Hey, we, we want to lovingly rebuke you and, and say, hey, come back to Jesus. Verse 20 says this, it says, for for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so as we walk through this, the promise that we have is that in the difficulty of confronting sin, God is with us. We don't do this alone. In fact, as we do this with others, we don't do this with our own human strength. It is with the love of God that we call someone to repent. So if, if on, a, on account of a few others, the, the, the person will not repent, Jesus says, gives us another step. He says, then bring it to the church. And again, I'll quote David Platt on this. I think he has some, some great insight here. He says, this step may sound unloving or even embarrassing, but we need to, to, to feel the tone behind what Jesus is saying here. He says, we're tempted to think, Why tell a whole group of people about this brother and his sin? In reality, however, the entire church is saying together, we love you and we want you to come back to Christ. God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. Finally, Jesus says, if they still won't listen to the church, Treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And the idea here is that if someone won't listen after all of these steps. If you've gone to them privately, if you've gone with a few others, if, you, if they won't even listen to the church, then there's not much you can do after that. And at that point, after all of this, if you... You, you cannot recognize them as, as a believer anymore if they persist in their sin. And so you should treat them as though they do not believe the gospel. This isn't a call to mistreat someone in sin. Absolutely not. Rather, if someone will refuse to turn from their sin, then there is reason to say to them, that's part of the Christian life is turning from your sin. And if you just won't do that, we cannot confirm that you are part of the church. And that undoubtedly will be difficult. But the call from Jesus to the church in all of this is to to love with the great love with which he loved us. We come to this last section of our text for today. And we see Peter asks Jesus uh, this question. He says, Jesus, how long should I continue to forgive my brother? How many times do I need to forgive someone who sins against me? And Peter, thinking that he's being uh, more gracious, he, su- he suggests this number. He says seven times. Uh, I read this week that uh, in the Old Testament, there's a, I think it's in Amos, where uh, God had forgiven three times. And so someone was saying, Peter's suggesting seven times. He's like, I'll do double that plus one. And he thinks he's being like incredibly gracious, right? He's like, I'll do seven times. And this is what Jesus says. He says, not seven times, but 77 times. And that the specific number that he, he gives is not important. In fact, some translate it to say 70 times seven, right? That's like 490 times. The, the point is not the number itself but that no one would bother, be bothered to keep track of that many sins, right? The idea is that you just continue to forgive over and over. And to emphasize his point, Jesus, he tells us another parable here. He tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, All right? So the story goes like this. So there's a man who owes the king uh, some money. And the king, he wants to settle his debt. And so he he wants to collect what is owed. And so this man is brought before him. And we're told that he owes 10,000 talents, okay? 10,000 talents. That means nothing to you right now, probably. But keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Um, So we see that the the man cannot pay it, and so the king orders that he and his family is sold in order to, to pay off the debt. Basically, because he cannot pay what he owes, he and his family are going to have to work for the king until the debt is paid. And so the servant is distraught, right? He's overwhelmed with hopelessness. And so he falls on his knees and he begs the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And the king, what we see, he has a change of heart. He has, has pity on him. He, he lets the man go, and he forgives all of his debt. Okay? Now, we're told a, a second part of this story. So this same man who, who owed the king, he has uh, some people that are working for him. So he finds a servant of his who owes him some money. And it says this, this man, we're told he owes 100 denarii, 100 denarii. And so the man wants to settle the debt, but his servant cannot pay at the moment. He's un- un- unable to pay his debt as well. And so he seizes his servant. He says, It says he starts to choke him. And he says to him, pay what you owe. And just like this man, his servant responds to him the same way. So he falls to his knees. And he pleads with the man, have patience with me and I will pay you. Except this time, the man who had been forgiven shows no mercy at all. He has no compassion for his servant and he orders him to be thrown into prison until he can pay it all back. What are we seeing here? I I told you we would come back to to those those measurements. Let's take a look at that for a minute. So the second man, right? We'll start at the the, the latter half of the story. The second man, the the servant of the man who had been forgiven, how much does it say he owes? It says he owes 100 denarii. How much is that? So uh, a denarii uh, would be equal to about one day's wage, right? One day's worth of work. So 100 denarii is... A hundred days worth of work. That's a decent amount of money, right? But it is definitely payable. If you work six days a a week like they did in that day, you could have that paid off in four months. And so that's what the second man owed, and and that is what he has been thrown in jail for not paying. What about the first man, right? How much did he owe the king? It says he owed 10,000 talents. Well, what's a talent, you ask? Um... I have a Bible at home. In, in the back of my Bible, there's a table, and the, uh, this table has a list of measurements that were used in that day that we don't really have today. Um, if you have a Bible at home or with you to hear today, you may have something similar in the back of your Bible. Um, what it says uh, a, a talent is one of those measurements in that table. How much do you guys think a talent is worth? See? I didn't hear, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll just tell you, a million, I don't know, it's worth, what it's worth is 20 years worth of wage, 20 years worth of wage, and this man owed 10,000 talents, (laughs) that's insane, you could never pay that off, right, that would be, that would take thousands of lifetimes to pay off, it is impossible, and this is what was forgiven him. That's how much the king pardoned him. It was innumerable. And yet this man would not forgive a hundred-day debt after he had been forgiven so much. And because he was unwilling to forgive, the king throws him in prison till he can pay off his debt beyond the span of his life. And so how many times ought we forgive? The amount of time someone has sinned against you pales into comparison to the sin that we have committed against God. Our sin is great. There is an infinite cost to rebelling against the God of the universe. But great is the forgiveness that we have received by God. Great is the forgiveness we have received by God. How much have we been forgiven by God? An infinite amount, an amount we could never pay, not in 10,000 lifetimes. And God laid our debt on the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus carried the weight of your sin and mine as he dragged the cross up the hill. And God poured out the wrath on his son Jesus that day. And he looks at us and says, because of him, your debt is forgiven. So how much ought we forgive? Seven times? No. Till you cannot count and beyond. Because that is how much we have been forgiven by God. Great is the forgiveness that we have received by God. As we wrap up for today, this may be a a challenging text for us today, right? Why is that? Because it directly confronts sin. It confronts sin that we cause, sin in our lives. It it confronts us on how we ought to handle the sin of others. It confronts the severity of sin. But I want to bring it back to the question that we asked at the beginning. What defines greatness? As Jesus says, greatness comes through humility. And the picture we see here of humility is a Christ-like, Christ-like self-sacrificial humility. The humility to pursue someone who has sinned against you. The humility to be willing to take your sin seriously, to take drastic measures to fight your flesh the humility to forgive, to forgive sin over and over like Jesus, the humility to submit to the reign of God in your life. It takes humility to enter the kingdom of God because our only way to enter is through the humble King Jesus. Greatness is a picture of Jesus. How great is Jesus that he would humbly take on the great consequences of our sin on the, gro- on the cross. How great is Jesus that he would relentlessly come after lost sinners like us. How great is Jesus for the great sin that we have been, been forgiven by him. So when our sin or the sin of others feels great, know that Jesus has overcome it because he is greater. Praise God for Jesus. How great is our God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl@gmail.com at or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.